Thank you so much for coming out on what is not the nicest evening uh, to this event, Future States. My name is Rebecca Huntley and I'll be chairing the discussion this evening. Before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, and I pay respects to their past and current generations. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, we also have to pay respect to their custodianship of the country. I also want to welcome people to the inaugural University of Sydney Innovation Week. Innovation Week is not a judgment on the federal government's policies at the last election. It's, a, uh, it's really a week celebrating the best of the university's teaching and research, a real focus on how academics at this fine institution are collaborating and working together. And that will be one of the themes of tonight's discussion. Uh, now, we've got a bit of housekeeping. One of our very esteemed guests wanted to know, is it difficult to tweet? Is it hard to do this tweeting thing? And it absolutely is not, for those of you who are on Twitter, we do have both a hashtag, UCID Innovation, which is up there, um, and also Sydney Ideas has their own handle, which is at Sydney underscore Ideas. I encourage you to tweet, but I also, only if you're a multitasker, I would rather that you listen to what people are saying rather than spend your whole time looking at your mobile phone. That makes me sound like you know, a mother, which I am. Um, <laughs> now, I want to introduce our fantastic panel this evening. Um, Look, each of these speakers could talk and um, keep you in trance for an hour, and we're very lucky to have all four of them. I want to start first on my left, Professor Adriani Broman. I know her as Ari, but I'm going to call her Adriani. Um, Broman is a professor of political sociology in the Department of Government and International Relations, and she's been researching young people, political engagement, social media, growing inequality and the future of political advocacy. Please welcome Ariadne. Um, on my immediate uh, left is Professor Stephen Simpson. He is the Professor in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences and Academic Director of the Charles Perkins Centre. And if you don't know that's where we are, this is a, a part of the Charles Perkins Centre. The main uh, building is over there and it's definitely worth looking at. Um, extraordinary space and with people in it doing extraordinary things. He is a world-renowned biologist and his research on nutrition and protein is changing the way we look at our diets. Welcome to Professor Simpson. I'd like to introduce Associate Professor Robin Alders. She's a Principal Research Fellow in the Faculty of Veterinary Science. Her livestock research contributes to ecologically sustainable development and she's got a particular interest in food and nutrition security and food systems research. Um, welcome, Robin. And finally, Professor Thomas Mashmeyer, who doesn't know how to tweet, but he knows everything that anybody should know about nanotechnology. He's Professor of Chemistry and the founding director of the Australian Institute of Nanoscience Technology and he advocates big science solutions to the world's energy, environment, technology and sustainability challenges. Welcome, Thomas. Um, 
So your CVs of all of the people on, on the stage here are, are really only the beginning of the story. And so I thought how we would start is to get each of the guests to talk a little bit about a particular research project that they're working on at the moment. They're all working on lots of different things. But uh, I think the audience would be interested to know what they're actually researching and working on right at this moment. So very briefly, we'll start with you, Ariadne. What, do you, what are you working on at the moment researching and looking at um, that's particularly innovative, collaborative, or focused on the future? Um, okay. So all of my research is really focused on questions of political inequality. How do we redress long-term political inequality, include more voices, uh, and more diverse voices in politics. My latest project is called Crowdsourcing Political Engagement, and it's on the emergence of online petitioning platforms such as Change.org and crowds, uh, crowdfunding platforms as well, such as Start Some Good and Possible. And I'm looking at those to see how they're fundamentally changing uh, citizens' political voice. And in that research, how are you conducting the research? Is it, um, are you doing? Uh, we're doing a combination of big data analysis. So we're using, we're scraping the yep. um, data from change.org and we'll do so with some crowdfunding sites. And then we'll go on to do surveys with uh, citizens as well as interviews with organisations who are engaging in this new space, um, looking to engage with their members, engage with general citizens around raising money, signing petitions, joining campaigns. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, Stephen, what are you working on at the moment? So many things. Can you pick one that's really... Uh, I guess um, reshaping the science of nutrition. I think that's our grand project within the Charles Perkins Centre, which is an even grander project in its own right. So we're working from taxa that spans slime moulds to people via insects and captive animals and um, animals that we produce for food all the way up to free-ranging um, orangutans in the Bornean um, rainforests to try and understand the concept and to quantify the concept of diet balance. What does it mean to have a, a healthy, balanced diet? How do you quantify diet balance, how do you think about it, how do you provide a theoretical framework which takes you right back to the principles of evolutionary biology and ecology, because that's my um, native instinct, I suppose. I started as an entomologist. And ultimately, how do we translate that into the betterment of health for individuals, for communities, and actually, um, ultimately, for the health of the planet? So rebuilding the science of nutrition. I think that's probably it. And this connects a little bit to some of the work you do, Robin. Um, and you do quite a lot of work in rural communities in Australia, but also in parts of Africa. What's, what are you doing right now? That, uh... So I, the big question is, how on earth do we feed this growing human population in a sustainable, ethical and safe manner? And I've enjoyed 20 years of working in villages in sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and I would much rather still be there. The tricky thing is that what I came to understand was that they're on the same trajectory that we've been on. So as we see undernutrition falling, they're not plateauing of having people well-nourished. They're overshooting and having people who are becoming obese as well. So the reason I've come back to Australia is that I worry about our stats here and Charles Perkins was uh, established to tackle obesity as one of the issues, but that's linked to 
changes in our own ecosystems, dismantling our rural communities as we know them. So I'm interested in join, joining it all up and to have Australia set a good example that others may wish to follow. Thank you. Um, Thomas, now, when I, before I ask you to tell me what you're doing, it might be good for some of the people here who don't know what nanotechnology right. is to give uh, us just a working definition okay, of it. Okay, so nano, nano means very small, not necessarily small mudges or small mines, but small, small um, uh, reality. So, so a good thing to think about it in terms of how I visualise what is nano. If I take a telescope and I look at the moon, and I have an astronaut who took the Sydney Morning Herald to the moon and shows it to me, and I look at it with my telescope, I can read that Sydney Morning Herald. Now, I invert that telescope and look into the depth of matter and the same amount of magnification that I need to read the Sydney Morning Herald on the moon from Earth is the magnification that I have here to look at the depth of nanoscale. So that, that is nano, maybe in a way that is uh, <coughs> vaguely understandable. Um, and nano is really where stuff happens. So you have molecules, which are doing various bits and pieces, but the physical realization of their effect of what happens around you uh, happens on the nanoscale, whether it's life, enzymes, cells, parts of cells, whether it's microstructure in steels, whether it's microstructure and plastics, whether it's electronics in your iPhone, all the bits which have the actual working effect of what you see are things on the nanoscale. And, and what are you working on in particular that you want to share with us right now? Um, so I'm a catalytic chemist. Uh, so I study making chemical reactions faster and also more selective. So I only make some faster, not all. And that is all focused in my group on reducing the carbon footprint of our activities. It's all about CO2 emissions reductions. And uh, we've got a number of global projects where we're doing that. So we're looking at landfill plastics and use that uh, uh, to, make, to make fuels and uh, chemicals. We're also looking at biomass waste, pre-aggregated uh, from pulp and paper uh, factories, which, are, which is currently used for very low-grade heat. And we make chemicals and fuels out of that. But most particularly nano, uh, I set up a, uh, a battery company just a few, well, a year ago or so, and they were looking at nanostructured gels, which are, just think of gels, you know, uh, uh, in nappies, for example. They are nanostructured gels. My claim to fame is I've improved the adult nappy. Uh, so it's That's up to three, it's up to, country, it's, it's, it? it's, it's up to three and a half liters absorbed, absorbed capacity now from uh, Unilever, and I think that will actually be my most profound, <laughs> profound uh, uh, yeah, achievement for humanity. Um, and, and, and those sort of gels we've used to gel very reactive chemical species inside a battery, and that does a very interesting job, and the nanostructure is important. Okay, I want to stay with you, Thomas. I want to talk a bit about innovation. So we heard a lot about innovation at the last election, mm -hmm. how exciting it was for everybody to live in an innovative, um, you know, innovation was exciting. Um, I would like you to define what you think innovation means for you. Right. And does it diff what, how you might look at it, does it differ from, let's say, how it gets talked about in an election or well, what yeah. the general public might think innovation is? Um, I think innovation is one of those words that's used a lot. You know, innovative accounting, innovative whatever. 
so, so the way I like to define it, and I looked at it once up in the Oxford Dictionary, if you, have a f if you invent a telephone, and there wasn't a telephone before, that's an invention. If you have a telephone and you invent the iPhone, that's an innovation. So you're taking something that's already there and take it to another level, but it's not completely new. Um, and the other way of looking at it is uh, looking at it really as technology translation. So you have, therefore, you know, your initial discovery, your initial thing, but then you want to translate it into commercial use. And that's an innovative step to do that, to scale the invention, to actually make it real rather than being in a small test tube, you have it in a big factory. So uh, that's what I see innovation to be. Um, Steve, what's your view? I mean, it, it, obviously one of the reasons why Charles Bridges was established was to deal with some, you know, huge right. problems that are facing our society and people would normally say, what are the innovative approaches that right. we should take to something right. like obesity? Well, I, I perfectly agree with Thomas. Innovation is, um, there's a fabulous word, a pan-creston, which means... <laughs> that it means so much it means nothing and um, hence becomes meaningless. So I, I like to think of, let's say, the most innovative um, system in the history of the universe is um, natural selection. So if you look at the wonders of the natural world, including ourselves, that has happened through a process of innovation over billions of years where... Things have emerged by chance in large part. They have been, the opportunity has been taken within a given context and they've been built upon cumulatively. Exactly what Thomas has just said. So the process, the innovative process in natural selection is that you come up ultimately with extraordinarily complex and elegant solutions to even more complex problems. Um, the evolution of the eye, for example, the evolution of our um, precisely and exquisitely um, ultimately designed through natural selection physiological systems. So that's real innovation. The other uh, form of innovation you might see is in the brain where you've got neurons interacting with neurons. No neuron knows anything else about what's happening in the brain. But emerging out of those um, simple relationships one to the other, you, you, you get this emergent extraordinary phenomenon, consciousness in the human brain, for example. Or the embryo that ends up um, from two gametes producing you or me, a newborn baby um, at birth. They're innovative processes. And so when you start to, to take a complex challenge like the current chronic disease burden, you need to have a system that allows you to untap that same potential. It has to be adaptive. It has to allow innovation or creativity to occur. It has to have a way of capturing those new ideas, putting them together in new ways, and accumulating that knowledge. And over those accumulations, you'll start to get really complex emerging solutions. So we needed in the Charles Perkins Centre to bring all the relevant disciplines together in the first instance. So philosophers, um, physicists, people working in economics, metabolic scientists, clinicians and so on, agriculturalists and veterinary scientists. And you bring them all together, expect them to be good at what they're good at, and then start letting them interact. You commence with that Petri dish and then you design as a result of the outputs. You just 
um, encourage it along a given um, pathway to translation. Yep. Ariadne, um, we tend to associate innovation with the hard sciences sure. or, you know, the obvious kind of technologies, computer sciences. And um, to what extent can the social sciences be innovative? Well, I think one of the ways we can be innovative is thinking about what innovation really means and how it is actually a social and political construction. If we think about it in current political debates, it tends to be the innovation of technology, uh, which is seen as always a social good and about advancing society. But a social scientist would also say, well, let's think about the effects of those technological advances as well. For me, I'm particularly interested in the effects of autom increasing automation and what that's doing to the nature and future of work. Are there all sorts of uh, blue-collar uh, jobs that are going to disappear due to automation? And what happens to all of those displaced people? How they does work for, evolve and change as well? So it's they not vote a, for Donald Trump. Well, Trump. I mean, that's a bigger question about... Yeah, yeah it's a political one, yeah, yeah. about political um, unrest and so on. But I think that we need to always think behind when people use terms that are all-encompassing, like innovation, let's think about their effects yeah. and what they're using the, the terms for. Robin, in the work that you've done in places like sub-Saharan Africa, what, um, what contribution can um, the work that's happening in a place like Australia, which seems like a completely you know, separate in terms of you know, affluence and, and so forth, what, what kind of connection can we make from real innovation here to the lives of the kinds of people you work with? So, apologies, Sydney University. I think the thing that uh, has helped me the most with my work with farmers in sub-Saharan Africa was actually that I was born on a farm in Australia. And so growing up on that farm, you understand a little bit about the challenges you face of um, trying to produce a product, to try and support your families, and to have governments that don't listen to you, and to have researchers that know what you should be doing, but they only know part of what you do. So understanding that the farmers who are out there and who are surviving has been incredibly important. I'm extremely grateful for my training as a vet here. It was very good. My training in comparative physiology, so understanding different digestive systems and how they need to be nourished in order to attain good health is all really important. And uh, following on, talking about social sciences, I think the real leap forward for our work was involving an anthropologist who helped us in the most um, kind way understand that what we were communicating with farmers was totally misunderstood. Very clear to us, didn't connect at all. So for us, the big innovation was bringing in people who understand people. Because after all, agriculture was constructed by us. It is very much influenced by who we are and what we see as important. That leads me quite neatly to talk a little bit about the opportunities and challenges of collaboration across, let's say, different disciplines, but perhaps within academia and outside. When we spoke leading up to this forum, you said that, you know, we need to join up the world, and that's about joining up different people in different countries across different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, but there are, you know, challenges, real challenges in, in joining up the different worlds within a university. Um, how hard do you think it is to collaborate? That's an extremely good question. And I think in my case, it's quite easy because I'm driven by solving a problem. 
And that's because I'm long in the tooth and I'm looking forward to retirement. I think for early career researchers, it is a real challenge for them because in order to succeed, you know, you have to achieve certain metrics that are designed within disciplinary silos. So I think one of the big challenges, and it's wonderful to see Sydney embarking on this, is how do you encourage good interdisciplinary research that enables early career researchers to become excellent in one sphere, to get the publications they need, to get the networks they, feed, they need, but to have the time and the opportunity to build those networks within the university, within academia globally, but in the case of the work I do, which is about providing nutritious food to people, to recognise and to value those people as equal partners in the endeavour. And that time frame doesn't necessarily, certainly doesn't match political time frames, and it doesn't match the time frames for how people are encouraged to pursue their academic careers. Yeah, and I'm going to go to Ariadne about this because you're not long in the tooth. <laughs> you might, you might feel a bit long in the tooth. Yeah. I mean, your generation was really the first generation of academics that didn't kind of slide reasonably neatly from PhDs and publications into to safe academic jobs. Most okay. people of your generation that are in academia have worked long and hard. Um, and the rules of the academy change. You know. So when you think about what is the cost for young researchers of collaborating, what are yeah. the opportunities, but what are also the costs? That's good. It's a political question. I didn't even have to bring the politics in. Uh, yeah, universities are changing as spaces. I've been here at the University of Sydney for 17 years, so a while. Uh, and in that time, I've seen, uh, I guess, the both external and internalised pressures on researchers change in terms of the competitiveness to get jobs. We live in an international... Uh, market for researchers and for research, and I think that's much more difficult. I mean, I started my job here before I'd finished my PhD. I was lucky. That doesn't happen for this next generation of academics. They often have to piece together little pieces of research contracts or teaching contracts and keep that momentum going with their research career. So they spend a lot of those early years feeling insecure and, um, and feel the competition. So how we reconcile these broader ideas of collaboration and research for researchers' sake when we're also talking about competitiveness and people's livelihoods, I think it's a really live issue within universities. So thank you for giving me that, um, right. that soapbox, Rebecca. That's all right. That's okay. <laughs> and I'm interested from both Thomas and Steve in response to um, those questions that Ariadne's comments about the challenge of collaborating if you are under that kind of academic pressure but also to perhaps reflect on some of the great things that come to collaborate. Uh, I mean, really, the, the cornerstone mm. of the Charles Perkins Centre is, is collaboration. collaboration yeah, mm. yeah. So yeah. how easy is it? Well, uh, I was um, really put, put into um, stark contrast. There was a, an international delegation a little while ago that um, came and said, you know, you've built this wonderful collaborative environment. We want to do the same how do we make people collaborate? <laughs> um, and again, we had uh, another potential recruit to the Charles Perkins Centre, a very senior academic, come and ask me, how many people will I be in charge of? Now, both of those are the wrong questions um, because they're the antithesis of what you really need for collaboration. Now, I think in, in, in modern science... 
it's very hard to do anything without collaborating. So collaboration now becomes uh, a requirement. It's not an option, it's a requirement. Mm. But still, you can't force a marriage in the same way you can't force a collaboration. And I think what we need to be able to do is have people good at what they're good at, so they need the disciplinary depth and they need to be respectful of other people and their disciplines and they needn't have to try and do everything. So when it came to the Charles Perkins Centre where obesity was one of our major missions, um, there was an initial instinct, I think, to say, well, look, we've got, we've got some fabulous people in the classics department working on body image in ancient Greece and we've got some wonderful cell biologists working on fat cells. Let's put them in the room together. We'll have Norman <laughs> Swan come and, and facilitate a discussion. What, I, I love Norman dearly. And something really amazing will come out of that. And, and it won't. Um, be, it didn't. No, no, we didn't. We didn't because it was clearly the wrong, the wrong way to do things. So what you've got to do is give people an overarching mission, which is Robin's point, so you all share that same direction, and then you say, okay, show us what, how you can take your skills. I don't care if it doesn't seem obviously related to achieving that mission yet. You're a philosopher. Help us by joining this community and finding collaborations amongst this um, uh, cafeteria of disciplines, and something exciting will happen, and it does. So Ari wants to respond to that. I'm, I'm going to flag with you, Thomas, a bit, then I'm going to come to you about the challenge of climate change and collaboration. Okay. But Ari, in response to that, yeah, what do you have I, to say? I really appreciate what Steve's saying in that there's so much that we in the social sciences and humanities can learn from collaboration within science. And I think that collaboration is, is an ethos, really, in our disciplines that needs to be rewarded and is increasingly being rewarded and that people need to see it as a way of working with other people, working with our PhD students, with our research assistants, collaborating on ideas, on, on defining problems and solving them. So I think we are seeing that shift. I didn't want to be totally negative. I think that is a real positive um, and focus. And I think that the spaces are growing for more interdisciplinary connections and respect as well. Yeah. So, Thomas, your work in the whole area of, of the mm. issue of kind of energy, environment, climate change, one of the big issues we need collaboration across the board. Have you, can you give us an example of when collaborations worked well, extraordinarily well yeah. for you? So, um, I think uh, we, we all are in violent agreement in terms of <laughs> collaboration has to come from a need, a genuine need. So, really, one needs to come up with a particular problem that you can enthuse people about it being worth to solve. And then you work out how can I best solve it and how can I solve it in a, in a way that is enlightened. And that usually means not just, you know, with one particular better mousetrap, but a more a broader approach, often also in communicating that approach. So you have to have a, the, the, the lot involved. Um, in terms of, I guess, my own research, where collaboration has been important, is uh, that uh, <clears throat> that project we're doing in Canada, where we're building the world's largest biomass to bio-crude plant. Um, that involves um, engineers, scientists, um, people in local government, people talking to the local community, having a community barbecue and whatever else, to say, no, this is a good thing, this is not a bad thing, and explaining it, and really getting people on board. Um, so, uh, so, so we had 
we, and of course all the legal and the financial people, etc. So, so, so we had the whole spectrum, and it was all united in one goal, which is to say, there's an existing waste problem, and we can turn this into an opportunity to reduce CO2 emissions. And once people understood that, they got excited about it, and they said, okay, how can we make this work? Um, and, and that's really the success. And the success is such that it is the first technology of its type developed in Australia to be exported internationally in the nation's history. So it's the first heavy chemical industry process that's an Australian one. Wow. So we are quite proud of that. Congratulations. <laughs> um, let's move now to talk a little bit about the future. And um, sorry, I should have at the beginning said that the conversation today is going to last about an hour or so with half an hour for questions which I will moderate and they... This, is, look, this looks like a very clever and not crazy audience who will not get up. <laughs> you know, I've moderated conversations where people stand up and want to talk for a very long time, but um, this is, that's clearly not you. So, um, but I should also say that this is being recorded and will be on the web, and um, so if you uh, do get up to say a question, you'll be recorded in doing that. So I just wanted to flag that. But let's now move to talk a little bit about the future. Um, Stephen Robin, so you work in the kind of constellation of issues around, you know, nutrition, health, food security, and we hear worst case scenarios about what's going to happen in this area all the time. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what are your views about where we might be in 2040? Do you share those kinds of, a little bit like that, have you ever seen that movie Wally, where everybody kind of floats around? Right, and these, right, you know, yes, and their legs don't reach they, the ground. Yeah, basically yes. things like that. So, Robin, do you want to go yeah. first? No. Well, uh, there are two. There's the dystopian version, and then there's the good version. And the dystopian version is that we continue as we are now. Um, we are now, as a population in Australia, 63% overweight or obese with all manner of comorbidities. Um, we're an ageing population. The healthcare costs particularly to treat disease, and diseases tend to be treated as separate things rather than somehow sharing an underlying set of causes, environmental and biological. So we'll end up with um, a crippling health system, which is basically chewing up the majority of our gross domestic product. We'll have an aged population that's obese and sick, um, and then elsewhere in the world, the developing world will have suffered even worse as they um, begin the double burden of undernutrition and overnutrition. And, and this that's is what Robin, Robin yeah. can speak to directly, yeah? Yes. So oh, absolutely. And my vision, I'm, I'm just basically an optimist. I think we're going to get out of this one. And I really hope, my dream for Australia is that in um, 2040, people will love their bodies as much as they love their car. And I say that because you... But potentially more than they love their car, because we might have to get rid of some of the cars if Thomas's you know, That's work true. is going to That's be able true. to really... It's simply an analogy. <laughs> and I use the analogy because when we pull into our service station, we now have a choice about what fuel we're going to put into our car, and we think about that. And if we take the car for a service, we have different oils that we oil different parts of the car. And what astounds me here with some of the brightest minds at the University of Sydney, when I ask people about their own nutrition, 
about how they make decisions, we are completely underinformed. So I'd love us to know about our own physiology, how old we are, you know, what our gender is, what's our reproductive status, our health, what do we need? What does our brain need to function well as distinct from our kidneys or our livers? I'd love us to be interested in that. And to do that and to focus on that, I think we'll reduce food wastage. I think we will value the products that farmers produce and we will pay them well to produce that good product that allows them then to invest in the stewardship of the land, which family farmers would really like to do. So I'm an optimist. I think we'll get there. Um, Thomas, does the kinds of nanotechnologies that are being worked on now or planned for the future mm. play a role in this optimistic vision that um, Robbins just talked I think, about? I think so. Uh, it's really about, I guess, on the one hand, we have, we have computers and communications, etc. So that allows us to make what we have uh, connected in a more efficient way. Um, I'm not sure about Internet of Things, Internet 4.0, whether I really need my fridge to know <laughs> that the beer has gone out and it's ordering automatically another beer, you know, attractive as it may be. Um, uh, but but it, has other, it has other benefits uh, to, to really look at a, at, a, at a planet that is under stress in terms of resource use and just trying to connect how we use resources to be more efficient. I think that will be a big impact. But um, the way we use energy, so the way we produce power, distribute power, use power, really shapes the way society is organized. And I think what we have there, if you read the blurb, my view is that we, have, we will have a distributed system. So we have a network that is highly resilient. We have lots of localized centers of, the, of generation and use uh, and storage. So our battery technology goes into that. And uh, that then allows, with 3D printing, manufacturing, for that also to be decentralized. So I think the key word for the future is decentralization, distributed energy, distributed manufacturing, etc. And what that will do is it will give local communities back some power. Now, the dystopian view is that the software programs for that are owned by one company. Mm. You know, all the batteries are owned by another company, and we just have the veneer of choice and the veneer of, but, you know, I think the positive view is that we have a diverse, mar diverse market. Um, and, and, uh, and I think that, that whole thing, the distributed manufacture, distributed energy, and a very resilient system will just come naturally. Because if you don't, with climate change, weather events will mean that centralized systems are inherently very, very vulnerable. And therefore, just to mitigate risk, Big companies, insurance companies, politicians will say, well, actually, it makes a lot more sense to go distributed. So I think we, it's always nice to have good legislation, but I think, you know, the, the, the profit motive um, uh, will just let us go there anyway. Yeah. I want to come to you a bit, Ari, to talk about how your work um, might enlighten us about how younger generations feel about some of this utopian, dystopian issues of the future because they'll be the ones paying for all the baby boomers to get the second knee replacement or whatever or for the hover chairs that they're going to be in in 30 years' time because they've been overeating. But I, I want to go back to you, Thomas, because if you think about the general public's view about technology mm. and its role in the future, it does lurch between this utopian, dystopian yeah. view mm. and potentially more dystopian because for some people their experience with technology means um, might be on a day-to-day -day basis very, you know, terrific. I can't live without my iPhone. But it also means that what's that going to happen to, you know, 
especially in the area of work. Some people massively overworked, a lot of people right. underworked, yeah. a lot of jobs yeah. becoming yeah. redundant and not replaced. Yeah. We've seen um, a range of different political phenomenon around the world kind of um, being fuelled by this anxiety about technology. I mean, how do you address that? How do you, well, how do you, how does somebody like you working in a tech, in an area that people don't really understand? Yeah. I think it's important to be honest and communicate, uh, and very clearly say up front, technology is not a saviour in itself. It's the people who use technology in a good way they might have a chance. Uh, so you can have a, you know, I always say you can have a, you know, a knife and you can, you know, cut a loaf of bread and butter it, or you can stick it into someone. You know, it's, it's how we use the technology that's there. Some technology has obviously more destructive potential than others, and we need a stronger public debate around that. But uh, overall, in terms of scale and speed, I think we need to be technology, we need to have technology solutions, <coughs> at least helping social changes, uh, and, and, and together that, 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 will, that will allow us to move forward. I don't think you can separate the two. I don't think we can just say, yep, technology will fix it. No, we have to have a deep societal conversation, food distribution, equity, polarization of income, all of that. Uh, and then that enables good technologies to be, to be implemented. Aaron, let's talk about, um, in the work that you've done, you've done you know, well over a decade or so of work on how emerging generations feel about a range of political issues, not just how politics is done, but how the political issues that matter to them. Um, what have been some of your conclusions about how they feel about the future? Well, it's, this is that pessimistic, optimistic yes. thing. Uh, again, like Robin, I like to be optimistic in terms of that young people have harnessed social media as part of their everyday lives to create better horizontal networks, connections and everyday communities. And it has been interesting that young people are the leaders in using, um, using social media spaces to engage with one another on issues. But at the same time, the distance between the decision makers and the powerful in society and those young people and the way they live their lives has never been larger. And the distance is both a political thing in that we have less representation of young people in political debate, but it's also that the levels of trust in politicians and politics have, are at a record high across most advanced democracies. So how you kind of reconcile those young people care deeply about a, a lot of issues. They care about their futures in terms of work, education. We've seen a huge debate about housing affordability yeah, this last week that really started as a social media debate about um, smashed avocado, if everyone, yeah, everyone saw you, it. I was going to when you saw that, what, what was your response? I was actually um, really excited by the response because... Housing affordability is one of those that is really generationally specific and the way we think about it, not just in terms of being able to afford houses in major cities like Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane that have become unaffordable for younger generations, but also how we think much more about uh, rental affordability and so on. Young, I mean, it's estimated that uh, towards 50% of young people may stay in rental property most of their life. So how do we make renting more secure? How do we make it fairer? So all of these things have come onto the debate, into the debate in the last week through a whole lot of meme creation and social media sharing that's led to the Treasurer and then the Minister for Cities last night <coughs> on late line, I think, having to articulate what their position is on housing affordability for future generations. So we're kind of seeing what started as, you know, 
fun outrage and mocking really turn uh, political very, very quickly. And that's part of the speed of what social media does. It can bring, it can bring issues to the fore and, um, and politics needs to learn how to respond to that. Um, we're going to go to questions in a second. Um, just finally, if we're going to take a kind of optimistic view about our future and, and more broadly the future of the world, can you reflect on what role you think your work, your discipline or the academy might play in creating that bright future? So I might start with Thomas. Okay. Um, as I said, so scientists, engineers have got custodians in the sense of special knowledge. And it's up to us to communicate that knowledge in a fair way, in an open and transparent way, and help to calibrate some of the public discussion through the Academy of Science, through the Academy of Technological Science and Engineering, which are the two main academies in this area in, in Australia. And I think that's, that's our role. That's what we have to do. Robin? I think our work around food systems enables people with different skills, different experiences, different hopes and needs to come together and have that really important discussion. So while we will bring, the academy brings uh, a certain amount of knowledge and experience, we will be much more effective when we engage publicly. And once again, social media and the, the new um, platforms that are there really provide us with a wonderful opportunity. Ariadne? Well, I agree with that, so we'll get Thomas onto, onto Twitter, hopefully. Uh, oh, I can't I'll do make Twitter. It, I'll make it. I had a Kit Kat. Okay. <laughs> I'll make it my mission. But I think it is that we do live in a, in a time where the, the myth of the ivory tower academic still continues to exist, and I think we do need to break that down. So we need to kind of model that kind of interaction we want to see between citizens and between citizens and decision-makers so I use social media for that. I will write a blog um, to go with every journal article that I write. So I am putting that knowledge, that publicly funded research into sort of public debate and into the, into the public sphere. It's still about research first, but it is about making it accessible and wanting to engage with um, the community more. And we're in, we're in your crib, so I was leaving you to give you the last, <laughs> last um, comment because we're in your space. So. I guess two things. One is I think universities have to be the protectors of deep disciplinary knowledge. So there is such a tendency to superficial understanding and a questioning of expertise, and um, we have to, as universities, maintain the evidence base through disciplinary knowledge, we also need to untap that evidence base and to distribute it. Now, that's a really key point that's oh. come up time and again, and that actually refers back to um, the power and creative power and innovative power of processes like ecology and natural selection and culture, and these are all processes that are robust and distributed and creative and innovative can solve really complex problems, but they can also cause problems. So if you get a system running away with a positive feedback within it, and that's what distributed systems have the capacity to do, you end up with fad diets, you end up with Justin Bieber, you end up with um, the, the complete disregard for um, deep understanding and evidence and you lose that as a society at your peril. So I think universities are now more critical than ever before. So. Right. 
Very good. Yeah. <laughs> for questions, um, short, very short comments, but primarily questions. Um, and there is going to be a, um, a microphone going round uh, to the various people. So please put your hand up, wait for the microphone to come to you, and, um, and uh, you can address your question broadly to the group or to an individual, not a problem. Um, just a question around, you know, I think we all want an optimistic version of the future mm -hmm. of 2040. Do you think the current system can support that? In, in terms of, um, you're talking about this obesogenic environment that we have now, where these companies are sort of given free range to promote, target our children, whatnot, so we can have all the information we want about healthy eating, but if these companies aren't regulated in some way, it's, it's a lost cause. The same with technology, big data accumulating all this power. I love the idea of a decentralised system, but is it possible in the current form of capitalism that we have? That, that could almost be addressed by any panel member. But do, you do you want me to have a crack? Yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. Um, this is an example. We've built a system for all the right reasons. Um, we wanted secure food, palatable food, um, abundant food. Uh, we wanted to minimise energy expenditure. All the things that have... Um, been the um, success of any living species in the history of the universe, except we've been the only one who's had a chance to build an entire system around us that meets all our heart's desires. But it's killing us. And it's killing us as a result of um, the Darwinian marketplace where we buy, companies make and sell things that we buy. We buy the things that actually don't do us any good. Um, and our economic systems are simply not aligned with the betterment of health. And that's a powerful problem. Um, and similarly, our political systems aren't aligned with the betterment of health or uh, the prevention of ill health because economics, um, wealth matters more than health. That's the way we've structured our society for all good reasons, and we're complicit in it as consumers. So I think you do need regulation. You do need incentives at all levels in the structure of the system of society. Um, but we as individuals have enormous power to change that if we make decisions that go viral and become the social norm. We've seen it in tobacco. Uh, we're starting to see it now in the junk food realm. And I really am very positive for the future when it comes to the social movement to realign um, particularly the financial and political incentives with the betterment of health because it'll become to the betterment of political and economic systems to do so if we drive that change. Anybody else want to address that? Um. Robin? I think in terms of improving health, I think we do just need to throw things up in the air a little bit, and that's to help some of our public health colleagues. When I you know, speak optimistically about people choosing nutritious food and to see that as part of the healthcare system, they say it simply won't work. Doctors are involved in the illness system. So I think we do need to vision, have a different vision and to think again and the power of what social media gives us, the power of that connectivity to share information and to use our purchasing power wisely. Um, companies will listen, 
governments will listen, and, and they have to at some stage, because we all know health budgets are unsustainable, and we do need to keep ourselves healthy, not, not treat ourselves once we're, once we're sick. I, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like the question because it is sort of uh, forcing us to think about while I'm you know, positive about the capacities of social media and sharing of information and ideas, these are still corporately owned um, platforms, for-profit platforms that people are using every day and aren't always aware of the, the data that they're giving over to these um, to these corporations. A lot of these corporations think that they act in the social good and uh, for improving society, and I think we need to question that a lot more. But I don't think we necessarily need to question it by criticising people for using the platforms. I'm worried about those kind of discussions. Instead, we need to be uh, asking more questions about regulation. What do we expect from our governments about regulating the emergence of new, um, of new platforms and how data is harvested and how data is shared? Our, um, you know, what are our basic entitlements to privacy and so on as well? So I think we do need to kind of, you know, old-fashioned notion. As academics, we can speak truth to power. So that is, I think, part of what we can do um, as well within these kind of debates. I mean, the kinds of technologies you look at um, are often called disruptive. It's a, another very annoying yeah. term. Yeah. Um, it's but having worked for a lot of corporates in my time, they're terrified of social media in the way they are not terrified. They weren't necessarily terrified of broadsheets and all the rest of it because it is. Yeah. Um, it can blow up in their face quite quickly. Oh, totally, <laughs> and that's why things like uh, citizen-led online petitioning sites like Change.org or the um, community-run versions that are coming out as well, often their targets are corporations more than, the, more than government and policymakers now because they can see uh, a more instantaneous response. A lot of this work is around brands and reputation and having the kind of collective capacity to damage that's important or question that. <laughs> yes. What do you think about media sites like The Conversation? Is that making any difference or is that just, you know, intellectuals talking to each other? through public media without engaging with the greater general public? Great question. Um, have you all written for the conversation at different um, stages? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, any views? Did it, I'm interested from whether you got a response from your work on the conversation yeah. that you might not have from other work that you would have done. Definitely. I, I get invited to um, speak at community organisations and so on because they've seen my work on the conversation. That yep. happened to me yesterday. Yep. So it does happen frequently. And again, it's also training me to write in an accessible and an engaging way to sort of do that translation work, you know, based on my research and data collection, but to put it in the public sphere. I don't know a lot about the audience or what you're saying, but they must be successful because their model has gone internationally from Australia, so they're seeing that they're having... And I know that most of the science and health articles are, go hugely viral as well. I, I get a lot of emails on poo um, as a result of... <laughs> Sorry, I thought when you said poo, I said, is that a social media platform? <laughs> <laughs> i never heard of. You get no. emails on poo. Yeah, right. no, well, having, having written on the gut microbiome, ah. so yes, I get faecal, where can I get my faecal transplant was the most oh. common um, oh. email I had this week. Oh. Yeah. Robin? This makes me think of Mona. Uh, yes, we've written a few articles within conversation and certainly it gets widely read, it gets internationally read, but the dialogue as well, the comments uh, after oh. the article are hugely informative and also help you to think about how you 
express your ideas going forward and understanding where concerns lie uh, within the community. So I think as an interface where we can still feel safe hmm. because we're sharing our knowledge, but then as a way of having that dialogue, um, I think it's a very powerful tool. I mean, I can tell you as somebody who's worked on and off of media organisations and as a broadcaster is that um, the conversation was used constantly to think about ideas and if somebody could write well and persuasively on the conversation, you would be, feel comfortable having them on a radio show or on a TV show because you think they're able to, um, you know, communicate well um, and communicate uh, effectively on complex issues. So it's, it's influencing, well, the agenda of the ABC, which is clearly a socialist right wing <laughs> agenda that is trying to, you know, brainwash the entire nation. So there we go. Um, Thomas, do you have um, anything to say? Well, for the, when, when we had our opening of the Institute in April, uh, we, we, we reached out to lots of media channels, including the conversation, and that was very helpful. Lots of, you know, follow-on uh, discussions and follow-on pickups of media, etc. So it's a good thing. Good. I guess question. underlying the question might yeah. be, might be, well, there's so much out there, do we need something more? And I think uh, if we want to disseminate, uh, uh, Paul Keating said something once, and he said, well, if you want to convince people, you've got to say it so often that you want to vomit. <laughs> uh, so in that sense, to get good science out, uh, or good you know, general oh. academic discussions out, say it until you vomit. So there can't be too much. Um, I might get emails on vomit now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, we've covered both ends now. Open this but I would, I would say, Thomas, that I think that, that whilst repetition and, and good communication from academics is crucial, addressing your point, if we have the continuing attack on the expert in mm. by certain people in the media and politics that you know that continues that's hugely problematic yeah so, so 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 lobbyists people who have got vested interests rent seekers uh, will disseminate false information Exxon Mobil got uh, taken to court in California they were actively disseminating uh, wrong information about the about climate change, and I think they had to pay $25 million or something, which is a lot to me and you, uh, not so much to them. Um, so it's very difficult to have enough firepower if they are you know, some of the top 10 companies in the world actively pushing against it. But I think the good, the good example is smoking. I mean, those companies used to be really big, hmm. and they're not that big anymore, and we sort of won. Uh, in that sense, we hopefully can win you know, these sorts of battles as well. Sorry, yes, to this side again. It was actually about smoking, I was, going to, I was just going to say. That has taken an awfully long time, really. It was the early 1980s where all those changes started to occur. So I'm wondering, do you think with social media or these things, could the changes be a lot faster? Um, I know with the smash of avocados, but I mean, it hasn't, <laughs> you know, the, the discussion started, but yeah. nothing, you know, it'll take a while to change. Uh, so I actually am interested in, in, particularly in your area, about what we've seen has been a, a reasonably swift movement around sugar. Mm. And part of that's been around, you know, health gurus, but part of that's also been um, 
uh, at the grassroots. Mm. Yeah. No, and it's enough to make some of those companies who make sugary drinks monitor some of your staff. <laughs> Steve, on a regular kind, basis. Kind of so, creepy, I think. Um, views about, I suppose, and, and views about the role that perhaps broader media might have in that. And yeah, that. and having, uh, which is why Lisa Biro, who was featured in that article on the weekend, we mm. specifically recruited her from University of California mm. in San Francisco because that's her speciality, looking at bias through lobby groups or funders of research in the research outcomes. And I, I think all we can do is expose the research as it happens and how and and demonstrate how it's influenced by sources of funding and and just put it out there because unless we do that it happens covertly and those and and then you lose the credibility of real uh, disciplinary knowledge and evidence because it just becomes another voice mm -hmm. right, any any views about the kind of acceleration possible acceleration yeah. of of policy change because of new media oh look i think yes Definitely. New media does make things faster. It makes the sharing of information, the spreading of messages and I guess questioning faster. But the longer term effects in terms of both changing public opinion or public practices and the way that you're talking about or changing policy is, is really patchy. Definitely. And you'll, you've seen in the last few years that politicians will often make a gut reaction and a policy change. Um, often around animal rights issues, interesting. Live exports, I think, is a really fascinating example of that. There was nearly instantaneous policy change, but it's been kind of uh, whittled away over time. So I think the problem with some of these campaigns is the idea that it's a sort of a one-shot rather than those really long-term sustained campaigns in the way that anti-smoking uh, was uh, and so on. But I think that's also shifting within advocacy groups as well as they're, they're really starting to play the long game. It's not just about one Facebook post, it is about a whole broad-based campaign. And you're so, right, the, the evidence for smoking was in the 1950s and it's taken till now to, to get the change. In terms of sugar, I have a small anecdote that uh, one of the companies I set up in Holland is actually using sugar to make plastics for soft drink bottles. And they just signed a large contract with the BASF and Coca-Cola. So in a sense, they might be moving to take the sugar out of the drink and put it, in put the it into the bottle. <laughs> wow. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah. All right. So there's um, a lady there with her hand up and then the gentleman in the middle after that. Or the gentleman person, sorry, the microphone came to me. Yeah, obesity, obesity is a massive problem throughout the world, and it seems like um, uh, every human and most animals have a set point for their desired weight, and over time, for people, that tends to uh, ratchet up. Um, what do you think are the prospects for an intervention that will? Um, give control of that set point? Actually, I'm not a big believer in the set point. I think that the set point um, or stable weight to which you tend to return is a phenomenon that's real, but I think it's physiologically controlled in a different way to the sort of thermostatic set point idea. But that, that's, that's a, a, a nuance. I think the point you're making is that if we understood 
really well the control of appetite and the way in which appetite control um, is influenced by what you eat and your lifestyle more generally and your age and all sorts of other things, you have cues and clues as to how you might intervene. Um, now, you could go down the pharmacological drug route to that or you could simply um, adjust your diet appropriately to support a better outcome. But the key is that if we understand that we're um, long-evolved, beautifully-evolved um, physiological control systems that are in the wrong environment, we've put ourselves there, but nevertheless we're in the wrong environment, such that all the things that ought to keep us a healthy weight and in healthy state are actually being subverted by the environment that we've, we've built. If we understand that and we understand the basic biology of appetite, then we're empowered to be able to resist those siren calls of this environment and to change the, the environment appropriately. Um, and I think we've had the wrong model for looking at nutrition, for looking at um, appetite as two examples. It's been predicated on calories, uh, which is a one-dimensional view of the world, and we now know that's not right, um, that we actually have multiple appetite systems that compete with one another. Um, so there's really fundamental biology that if we understood it better, we would have a much better chance of knowing when we could win, when we can intervene, and when we can change the environment to better um, health outcomes. And that's certainly what we're doing here. I'm going to ask Robin, is that, I mean, you work with communities and we've seen certainly in Pacific Island nations that they've gone from perhaps um, quite naturally healthy weights or slight undernutrition and overshot, <laughs> you know, a mark and kind of gone from real problems in terms of obesity. In your work, is there a, any kind of theory behind an actual weight point? Um, what I would say is that I think caring for human health is so important is that we should take it away from doctors. That's what I think. When you're producing livestock, um, the weight gain in animals, the health of that animal, is critically important and huge attention is paid to it. So the shocking thing for me, coming from working on animal nutrition to then look at the way we approach human nutrition, is how little interest we pay in really important things. So when you're producing a batch of chickens, uh, you're a big producer, you've got new food lots coming in, you analyse all of that food. You know what's in it and you're going to produce the optimal mix for that. Now, the data on the um, Australian food composition table, some of it is so decades out of date. The food is no longer the same food that it was produced, the way it's produced, the varieties, the breed, the food used or the nutrition of the soil is all different. It's all completely out of date and so... I think we need also to change language. I don't think obesity is the right word. We need to talk about malnutrition. When you are obese, you are malnourished, and in many cases that's accompanied by micronutrient deficiencies. When my students bring the stats from the Australian database, looking particularly in the elderly or in women of reproductive age, now farmers would go out of business if they managed their livestock, their animals that way. They're shocking. Elderly Australians have 60%, 70% levels of deficiency of key micronutrients. 
The science is not backing. We know how to do it. Why? Why does this happen? I think you made exactly the right point then. They would go out of business, whereas we create businesses mm. through mental health. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's the distinction. There, yeah, there's a range of business, mm. whether mm. it's the, the diet industry or, or the, the health, or, or, or the, the health industry. Yeah. For that yeah. mm. um, sorry, yes, yeah, sorry, yes. Thank you, and and I really appreciated that last comment too, Robin, about the role of education in uh, in healthcare and in uh, consumer-enabled healthcare. Uh, My questions are patient, however, generation needs to change um, for us to be able to use and gather and curate the influencing elements around us. How are we faring with collaboration in Australia and what will it look like in the future? Thanks. So, uh, just the mic is going a bit funny there. Sorry, so, the yeah. question was about how are we going with collaboration and what might it look like in the future? Do you want me to have a crack at that? Yes, please. <laughs> I, I think Australia is fantastically placed to be collaborative because we have a small population. It's very hard to get a, a concentration of experts in one place. So we have to collaborate. So in my experience, having spent a lot of my academic career in England, um, in Oxford where there were real um, centres of strength, you didn't collaborate so readily as you do here because here you have to travel to find the expertise you need. So we're inherently collaborative. Partly it's living at small population density in a really tough place. Um, the Australian continent. So we're, we're really set up to do it well. We also have a let's give it a try sort of attitude to things, which um, rather than, oh, no, that won't work, um, and why would you even suggest that? You're not an expert. We, we don't have that mindset. So I think Australia is predisposed to be collaborative. And if you untap that, you suddenly find extraordinary things happening. So in the Charles Perkins Centre... Three years ago, we had zero members because we hadn't yet been born. We now have 1,200 members, and they're defined by their um, engagement in our new network of projects. That 1,200 members, if you plot the collaborative outputs just in something like peer-reviewed papers, publications, which is a metric, it has grown like mushrooms in the most extraordinary exponential way. And we've untapped that potential across the university by giving people a new model, a new way of having access to celebrating collaboration and getting the feedback that comes from it without giving them lots of extra funding money. It's just emerged because of the opportunity. And without telling people what they should be doing and saying, this is how we've done a five-year strategic plan and you're going to have to do this to solve that problem. That's not how you get creative solutions. You allow people to be good at what they're good at, have an aim to a mission, and let them get on with it. And creative natural selection will do the rest. I think we're really well set up to do that. Yeah, so, so if I may follow on. Um, so our Institute of Nanoscale Science and Technology, long word, um, uh, follows a similar model. We are younger, not yet as well as established, a bit smaller as well. But uh, it's very much the same idea. It's, 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 fu- it's, it's looking at some of the really big questions uh, and, 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 and getting networks going across disciplines, encouraging people, enthousi- making people enthusiastic to work together. 
and that we're trying to create spaces, social spaces, physical spaces, uh, advantages to, to networking and to collaboration, and that is, that is working very well. And Sydney Uni, I should say, is, has been very visionary, I think, and quite courageous in funding things like the CPC, like, the, uh, like, like my institute, or the Brain and Mind Institute. Um, and that's, um, that is, I think, the way in which universities across the world are reorganizing themselves and are doing research. And actually, they're doing so according to our models. So we regularly get invited to go internationally to North America and Europe and explain how we've done it here. So it's being taken notice of yep. internationally. Um, that sounds like a great point to end on. We all talk about how fantastic the university is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You did a bit even collaborating at the end of Innovation Week, almost the end of Innovation Week. But I just didn't, if there was one more question in the audience, I'll take it. Um, I think there's one over there and um, one over there. So maybe that one first and then that gentleman over there is the last one. Um, I, I don't want to be negative on this, but is there um, a commercial pressure that can inhibit collaboration? I'm thinking particularly in the nanoscience area. If there's felt yes. the institution gets a lead, I mean, does that dampen down yep. the network? At a certain point uh, in the innovation space, in the translation side of things, one needs to involve outside people, uh, outside money. And structuring that is very, very important. So we're having a major interaction with one of the big software companies around the world. And there the model is that everything that is uh, researched here is actually to be published and to be open. And anything of commercial value that is seen in that publicly available set of data um, uh, will then be taken up internally by that company and, you know, and they, they look after that uh, internally. However, they don't take any data out from us that other people don't know. We are publishing everything for the rest of the world, except that they, being intimately involved in what one is doing, will say, well, actually, we sort of wanted to know that bit of public information because that helps us to do our own internal commercial projects. That's a very healthy way of doing it. Other ways are to have a more directed research, and uh, we also have agreements for that. So a company will pay for a certain job to be done. And that's also the function of a university, to help emerging industries to be competitive in the world market. So there's a balance between these things. Um, one quick question and quick responses. Yes, thank you. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm, I'm going to declare a, a slight bias here. I'm, I work in technology. Um, I'm just interested in um, just your views. I mean, you just discussed earlier that technological growth uh, is likely to cause sweeping changes in society, you know, automation, etc., uh, artificial intelligence. And then you sort of asked your resident technologist, um, you know, what, what we should do about it because most people don't get it. And, and I'm interested in whether you think that that's part, that possibly is a, a major problem that we need to address. Um, you know, I mean, I, I go to a lot of things on artificial intelligence, and a lot of these guys seem to think that um, we are possibly approaching the singularity, and, you know, we... The, the technology of growth is going to go, it, it's already going exponential. And, and if it's going to have such a fundamental effect on society, I'm, I'm wondering whether, you know, why, why, whether you think that it's appropriate that people should actually learn about that technology. And I'm, and I'm worried that sort of, because people don't get it, um, that this fundamental change about to take place, 
that people don't understand and they're not engaged in it and they're not necessarily trying to shape that in a way that suits them because they don't understand it and they don't feel engaged in it. So this is almost a question from Ariadne from the point of view of the work that you do hmm. about engagement and, you know, let's say some of the rapid changes in our society that are leaving different generations anxious and then Thomas as well. But how would you respond to that? Given we can't necessarily put everybody through a high degree in nanotechnology, and of course we need more focus on STEM subjects at school, but really how do we talk to the broader population? Yeah, I'm actually a big advocate for compulsory maths up yeah. until year 12, but that's a different story. Um, I, th I think you're really right in that we need to sort of take out the mystique and also who owns those discussions and who's getting to lead those discussions in that all technological advances are constructed as being for the greater good of society. So we need to bring in the more disenfranchised and the people who are most likely to be affected, which are poorer members of society as they're displaced, particularly in, um, in the workplace. So how do we talk about new skills development, uh, new forms of education and so on. So I think it's trying to bring the social back into the, any discussion of the technological. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's I, clearly I, not enough to just say, oh, you should be too, totally excited no, about no, technology. No, no, no. I mean, working, a lot of things can be totally frightening. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong, especially if you understand what exponential means and what network means and exponentially growing network means. Mm. That, that can be quite frightening, uh, especially if you understand it. So, so I think, though, the, a really strong role here are the social sciences, uh, arts, uh, that, that, that allow that broader discussion to, to occur and to alert people to these sorts of things, uh, whether it's nanotechnology, whether it's artificial intelligence. I think that I said that earlier in the piece, that, that, that broad engagement with society, I think that's really, really important. There is not a lot of commercial driver for that. No, so there right. needs to so, be a regulatory So it has one. to be done via common good, uh, via universities, via, acad via academies, um, you know, uh, citizens' organisations, things like that. Right, we will end it there. I'd like everybody to put their hands together and thank Steve Simpson, Ariadne Broman, Robin Alders and Thomas Mashmire for tonight. <laughs>